Well, if you would take out the Word of God and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We will be in 1 Samuel this week and uh, next week, and then we will start a Christmas series. Some of you have asked about that. Yeah, we will remember Christmas around here through sermon. So 1 Samuel chapter 24, we continue our series, The King We Need, and we are beginning to form a clear picture of the king we need in King David. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, I'm going to begin reading in verse 20 of this chapter. Hear the word of Christ. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Oh God, that is our prayer. It's our prayer to Jesus who will surely reign forever. He will be enthroned as the slain and risen king. And our prayer to him today is one of mercy. Would you be merciful to us, Lord Jesus? God, would you not cut us off? Would you not turn away from us? God, that is our prayer because of our sin and rebellion. And yet we know, we know because of the gospel, because of the shed blood of Jesus, the answer is no, you will never turn us away. For those who plead the blood of Christ, the answer is we will never be forsaken because there is one who is already cut off for us and his name is Jesus and it is in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My son got into the car, and I noticed that his baseball hat was just covered in dirt, which was extremely odd because we had not been to a baseball game, and as far as I knew, there wasn't a baseball field anywhere around. But his hat was just covered in dirt, and I could tell he was frustrated about that. We had been to a high school football game, and he had been off playing with some of his friends, and uh, I could just tell he was really frustrated about what had happened, so I said, why is your hat covered in dirt? What what has happened? What's going on? And he he began to tell me about a kid who, who had just ripped his hat off of his head to be a jerk, and had taken it and just put it in a dirt pile somewhere and just piled it up with dirt, just trying to be funny, trying to be a jerk. And then his sister chimed in and said, yeah, and he called him a really awful thing, something he should not have said. Now, that moment, I immediately went in to not protect my little foo-foo son, because he can protect himself if you know him. But why did you not whip this kid's tail? Why are we not standing before some officials right now and me trying to talk you out of getting in trouble for obliterating this kid for what he said to you? Some of you get shocked that a pastor talks this way. 
But we do believe in a gentlemanly form of justice in my house. We don't just go pick fights, but we do have a way of handling such bullies. And so I began to ask my son why he did not handle this himself. Why did he not do anything about it? And uh, the more throughout the evening, I just kept pressing him. How could you let somebody do that to you? Uh, and I know this kid, he's not scared. He, that's not what's going on with him. He's not cowardly. And I, I just kept pressing him. Why, why would you not do that? And I began getting frustrated myself at what this kid had done to, to my son. And I could tell even more. All I was doing was irritating him about the situation. All he was doing was getting more and more frustrated. All he was doing was feeling bad for what he did and what he didn't do. And, and he finally said to me, Dad, this kid's home life is horrible. I go to school with him, and you, you should hear the things that have happened to him. And he began to tell me some things, and, and my response, even at that point, was, that's not my problem. His away-from-home life is about to get bad if he doesn't get control of himself. And he said, Dad, you, you don't understand. And he began to tell me some things about the kid. And he said, I just feel, I feel sorry for him. And that's kind of what happened. And it was one of those moments where I still think I was right about it, just so you know. <laughs> but it was one of those moments where I realized that my kid is teaching me something about the gospel that I've yet to learn. I even talking with Danae after it was all over, uh, and she, we were talking about how convicting that was and how none of our other kids would have responded that way, but this kid would. And he taught us about mercy. And on that night, I realized that mercy, it's, it's not a form of weakness. It's, it's not always a form of cowardice. And what we actually see in 1 Samuel chapter 24 is the power and right to assert authority, to assert justice and vengeance at times is often leveraged in the Bible to teach us the power of mercy. And that's exactly what David does in 1 Samuel chapter 24. We see the anointed king of God who has every right to execute revenge and vengeance and justice in this moment. But he shows us the power of mercy, the power of mercy in the kingdom of God. Notice verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, which is odd, he has been pursuing the Philistines for his own good. They had attacked, they had been attacking Judah, they had been attacking his, his land, and he goes out to, to defeat them, and he returns. But notice, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En and he has been chasing David. He has been trying to capture David. He has been trying to kill David, and David has been fleeing, and David has been fleeing, and now David finds himself in this sort of oasis in the wilderness. This wilderness area was actually turned into a resort during Solomon's rule, and that's where David finds himself in the wilderness. And notice verse 2, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. Now that's significant because we see throughout how Saul's paranoia just keeps mounting and mounting and mounting. 
David has now 600 men with him. And Saul has 3,000. He is bloodthirsty for David. And he went out, all of Israel went to seek David. And, and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. Now that's just to describe an area that was treacherous. Only the wild goat maneuver and travel in this area. And, and this is where they find David hidden in the rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds. That's just an enclosure. By the way, and there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, that's not what you may immediately think. He went in to take a nap. He went in to lie down. And David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And so David and his men, they are hiding in these rocky crags, these enclosures, and they are hidden away stealthily. And all of a sudden, just by coincidence, the same cave that David is in, here comes Saul. And he comes to lie down. He comes to take a nap. And David, in verse 4, the men of David said to him, here is the day which the Lord said to you. This has to be of God, David. We've been running from this man. We've been sitting around campfires out in the wilderness, scared to death, scared for our life. And we've even talked to one another with delight. What would it be like to kill Saul? The man who's thrown a spear at your head some four times? What would it be like to execute justice upon Saul? And it just so happens that he ended up taking a nap in the cave that we are hiding in. Notice, this is of the Lord. Here is the day, verse 4, the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. David, I'm going to give your enemy to you, the Lord has promised, and you can do whatever you want. You can execute justice, David. And we begin to think that's exactly what's going to happen. If I were writing the story, that's what would happen. A gentlemanly form of justice. Notice, then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And our hearts sink. David, are you some sort of coward? Little sheep boy? Why didn't you slice his throat? The man has tried to spear you four times. David, you have the, the sword that you sawed off Goliath's neck with in your hand. Why did you not kill him? You just sort of snuck in and cut off a piece of his robe. Look, guys, I got him real good. David, what, what's going on? Verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, what goes on here is David even begins to feel guilty about doing that to Saul. Why, why did I do that? What am I trying to prove? Well, why, why would I even do that to Saul? And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Notice the way he's describing Saul. This is his enemy. And yet he says, this is my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. 
Now, remember, Saul was the king that Israel had chosen. And they did so out of sin. They said, we want a king like the nations. We, we want a king that will take care of our enemies, a bloodthirsty king who will fight for us. And here he is, this wicked, bloodthirsty king that God had anointed and allowed to rule over them. But God had allowed it. God had anointed Saul. And David realizes that. And, and he's even convicted of that. Why would I do such a thing to the Lord's anointed? The Spirit rests upon him. This was God's plan. This was God's will. God hasn't taken the throne from him yet. God hasn't given me the right to rule yet. Why would I assert my authority in such a way? And then verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave. It's almost like he's guilt-stricken here. And he called after Saul. My Lord, the king. That's how he talks to Saul, his enemy. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. David is submitting to Saul's authority. But it's not just Saul's authority that he is paying homage to. In this moment, we see that David is bowing before God's timing. And, and that's where mercy begins. Mercy, a heart of mercy, begins in trusting the sovereign will of God. And wherever you are, in whatever circumstance that you're in, it is God's rule, it is God's sovereignty that has placed you there. And you first and you first and foremost bow before his authority. And that is what God is, that is what David is doing here. He's saying, God, you haven't given me the right to rule yet. And he's even convicted that he's tried to assert himself in such a way. This is the will of God. Now, to us, it looks like weakness. To us, it looks like cowardice. But actually, what David is doing here is he is displaying power. He is displaying rule. In restraining to kill Saul, he is showing the power of mercy. And so often, mercy looks like surrender. Think about Jesus. It looked like surrender when he bowed before a Roman instrument of torture, a first century electric chair. It was almost like he was saying, I give up. But Jesus wasn't admitting that he was a criminal. What was he doing? He was asserting his power to give us mercy. On a cross, he is ruling in mercy. On an instrument that looks like surrender, he is ruling in mercy. And so often mercy looks like surrender. And that's what it looks like for David here. It looks like he's surrendering. But we have to understand mercy is not waving the white flag. When we show mercy, we're not admitting we're losers. We're actually doing the opposite. David knows the throne has been given to him. David has tasted the spirit of God. He knows he's going to rule and reign. And we do too. When we believe the gospel, we're given the presence of God and the spirit of God and the promises of God. And we know we can't lose. So guess what? We are free to show mercy. And when we do, we are to remember we're not losing. We can't lose in Jesus. David can't lose the kingdom here. It all will be given to him. And we live in a world right now where... We don't want to lose. We want to assert ourselves. We want to be known as the winners. 
And yet we display a power when we show mercy. We live in a world with corrupt politicians. And you've got to remind yourself that you're not losing when you commit to pray for them. When you commit to pray for officials that disagree with you, you're not losing. Losers whine and pout and slander. Those who are going to win say, oh, I don't have anything to lose. I can pray for you. We live in a world where, where, where you're going to go to school this week and you're going you're to set before professors who may mock Christianity. They may mock your faith and belittle your faith. And when you speak kindly to them on campus, you're not losing. You're not, losers complain. Losers act like they've lost something. But when you speak kindly to them in the name of Jesus, you're not losing. No, you're displaying the rule of mercy. You're displaying the fact that mercy wins. When you go tomorrow and that, that jerk boss who you've just seethed all weekend. I've got to go in and face him again. And I've done all of this for him. I've made his job so easy. And he never even says thank you. Well, when you go in tomorrow and, and, and you honor him, not just in public walking down the hall, but in private in the break room, instead of whining and complaining about him, what you're doing is displaying mercy. You're displaying that you're a winner. You're not a loser. Losers gossip. Losers complain. Losers slander. Losers freak. When you congratulate the person who gets the raise that you deserve, you're displaying the rule of mercy. When you invite the kids over from the family in the neighborhood who will not, no matter what, say Merry Christmas, because they're against it, and you still invite their kids over, and maybe you whisper, Merry Christmas. But you're not losing by building that relationship. Losers alienate. No, you're saying mercy wins. The kingdom wins. So I can show mercy. Notice verse 9, and David said to Saul, why do you... To the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Saul, this is fake news. This is not true. I'm not trying to kill you, although I should. I've never tried to. This is something that began in your head, this anti-Saul conspiracy. Behold, this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand, into the cave. Saul, I just had the opportunity to slice your throat, and I didn't do it. Notice it continues, and some told me to kill you. Even my men were saying, this is of God. You should kill him right now. But I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. I trusted in the sovereignty of God. God will figure all this out. So I showed you mercy. In verse 11, see, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For the fact that I cut it off, off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see there is no wrong or treason in my hands. Saul, here's your robe. Just to prove to you how close I was to you. There, there's a piece of your robe right here. And so there's no treason in my hands. No sword in my hands. I'm not holding your head in my hands. I'm holding a piece of your robe. 
It's a display of mercy. I showed you mercy, Saul. I have not sinned against you, even though you hunt to take my life. Here, here David is showing us that personal vengeance is weak. You do realize that anybody can take out personal revenge. Everybody wants to do that anyway. But the one who can refrain from that is not weak. It's strength there. David is displaying strength. Anyone can lash out with uncontrollable anger. Anyone can do that. David says that's soft. It's easy to hold a grudge. It's easy to just pout. You hurt me. That's soft. That's weak. There's strength in mercy. Anyone can vent in the comment section on Facebook or YouTube. Anyone can do that. Everyone does it. Strength is to refrain from such things. Anyone and most everyone gets excited when that person you loathe the most, when, when you see their life is following, falling apart. Oh, so-and-so from high school, remember they said that about me? Oh, they just got a divorce. And you kind of get excited. Oh, they're getting what they deserve for what they said to me and what they did to me. They lost their job, yes. And you probably wouldn't say that. You probably comment it praying. But anybody can find glee in those things. And David is saying that's despicable weakness. That's soft. Those who rule in mercy say, I could have killed you. I could have killed you, but I was gracious, I was kind, I was merciful, because I win in the end. Anyone can do those things, but there's only one who had the right to bring down legions of angels and wipe everyone out. Jesus in the garden, and his enemies come after him. And in that moment, he tells us, I could have wiped them all out. And Peter says, yes, let's wipe them all out. And he grabs his sword and he cuts off the soldier's ear. And we think, here we go. It's about to get good. Lord of the Rings style. He's about to wipe them all out. He's the Messiah, son of God. And he turns and he rebukes Peter. And he picks up the ear and puts it back on. And what Jesus is telling us is anyone can lash out in revenge. But only the most powerful one can turn himself over for the good of others. And there's a rule of mercy there. And those who have been changed by the mercy that says to us, forgive them for they know not what they do. Those of us who have been changed by, by the King of kings, the Lord of lords, most powerful, most authoritative, the one who has all the rights, King of glory, who lays himself down and says, forgive them for they know not what they do. If you've been changed by that, guess what you long to do? You long to show the same mercy to others. If you know yourself and you know your sin and you believe Jesus still died for you, then you have a heart to show that love and mercy to others. Because you look in the mirror and you say, he would save the worst sinner I know, which is me. And so you want others to know that he saves really bad sinners. The problem we have, though, is when those sinners are the people who've hurt us the most. That's when it gets real. That's, that's when it gets really difficult. 
is when God calls us to be merciful to the spouse who lied about the finances. When God calls us to be merciful to the relative who just decided to emote about how bad our kids are at Thanksgiving. You get these things under control? Trying to watch cowboys. Oh, I'm about to get somebody under control. It's about to get redneck holiday in here. You say, yes, I will. And you need Jesus. <laughs> That's power to be able to do that. Weakness lashes back out. And yet, Jesus has shown us power in the cross. And it's the power we want to display to others. Verse 12, David says, may the Lord judge between me and you. The Lord's going to figure this out. The Lord will avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. David says this. God is going to bring forth justice upon you, Saul. So I don't have to. God's going to avenge what you've done to me. And he quotes a proverb here. And he says, out of the wicked come wickedness. If it weren't for God's work in my heart, David says, I would have sliced your head off. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom... Has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? A dead dog? After a flea? Now, David's describing his own heart. Do you think I'm just some piece of trash? Do you think I'm just like everybody else and some, some criminal, just a little flea, nothing, dead dog, piece of garbage that I'll just lash back out? No. God is. Worked in my heart, he's saying in some sense here. And that's why I was kind to you. That's why I was gracious to you. And he says, may the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. He says, God's going to work all of this out. And God will vindicate who's right and who's wrong, who's good and who's bad. And I'm going to trust his justice here. David's mercy is rooted in God's justice. So often... We think mercy is doing away with justice. And some of us have been sitting here today going, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. So they, they deserve something for what they did to me. Yes, they do. And they will get it. Sooner or later. God has ordered even the world we live in with systems of justice. They're flawed and often corrupt, and we work to make them as good as we can here. We long for justice as Christians. We long for the justice of God to be displayed in law and order now, and we work to that end. But ultimately, our trust is God will bring forth justice. Every sin, everyone, even the worst sins committed at you and towards you and by you will be judged by God. And because we trust in God's justice, we don't have to execute personal vengeance. We don't have to revenge everything done to us because we know God will ultimately take care of it. And so we never take the justice into our own hands. We trust systems to do that in the world we live in. And ultimately, we trust that God will do that. And so, guess what? We are free for mercy. We are free to do it because we trust justice. We're free to be merciful to others. But the problem is, we want to be the one to execute. 
We want to be the one to take the sword. And so often we do that with our words. Man, I'd really like to take you out right now. So I'm just going to yell at you about how bad you are. And we, we want it, that, that power that's there in doing that. We want to feel the power when others' feelings are bruised. We take delight in that. And what we're learning here is we don't have to do that because God's going to take care of that. Every sin will be punished, so we are free to be merciful. Here's the truth. Jesus will obliterate all injustice. Any sin left unpunished, he will take care of it in the end. And he will do so with hell. The hell that Jesus brings, here's the point, is so terrorizing. And if you really understand what sin has done to the character of God or tried to do to the character of God, in the face of the character of God, and you really understand what hell is, eternal separation from God, from His goodness forever and ever, an eternal fire. And it begins with a king on a white horse with a sword who will destroy all of his enemies. Jesus is bringing a form of justice that should scare you so much that you even want your worst enemies to know mercy. If you really understand hell, those created in the image of God who have even done the worst to you, you would never want to endure such justice. And so what do you do? Even at times where we have to pursue justice here and now, we never long for those that endure it to endure eternal justice. And so we don't execute personal revenge. We show mercy because we believe in justice. And we look around the world so often and we see things falling apart and we want God to judge the world in righteousness now. We want sin to be punished now. And we ask the question, how long, O Lord, until you come back, until you establish your throne of justice, Until you come back with the rod of iron and execute righteousness, how long and why haven't you done it? And the answer is the same reason he hasn't wiped you out with his wrath right now. Mercy. God is being merciful to your enemies right now in the same way he's been merciful to you right now. And so we have the authority, the right, the power And we should have the hearts in light of God's justice to want to see others know mercy. Do you know who's endured the greatest injustice ever? Jesus. As you think about the injustices done to you, Jesus was sinless. Jesus was righteous. He was unjustly accused as a blasphemer, even though he was the son of God. And he endured injustice for you. And because he endured that great injustice for you, God can show us mercy. And because we understand that all sin will either be punished in the cross or with the sword of Christ in hell, we are free to show mercy now. We should long to want to show mercy now. Notice verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? You imagine... He's standing before his men, 3,000. All right, let's find him, boys. And he hears the shepherd boy, heart boy, speaking behind him about how he did not kill him. And he turns and he looks. 
and there's trembling in his gut. I was just in the cave asleep. I should be dead right now. He showed me mercy. And he's trembling. He can't believe it. David, is that you? Is that your voice? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Notice how David's heart of mercy breaks the heart of Saul. Do you want that for your enemies? The person who's hurt you the most. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be awesome if they just called you today and repented? Say, I'm sorry for doing that. Sorry I said that to you. You know how you get there? Keep showing them mercy. It breaks our hearts. Mercy breaks our hearts. It breaks Saul's heart here. And he said, you are more righteous than me. You have done what's right, for you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. David, I have been hunting you down like a dog trying to kill you, and you could have killed me, and you did the right thing. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me well, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. God did this, and God, did, God orchestrated the whole thing to show mercy if David had a sliced his throat, killed him, we wouldn't have thought anything different of it. We would have said, yeah, that's what I would have done. Let's go. Start cleaning house. Let's rule. Let's reign, David. That's what we would have thought should have happened. And God orchestrates these events to show us mercy. Verse 19, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? This is not how things work, David. This is not what I've done to you. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. This is too, too good to be true. Now, we know that this is temporary on Saul's part, but the man who has only tried to show David bad, his heart is broken and he wants the good for his enemy. And it's all because of mercy. But we see here, sin is not a misunderstanding. Saul's not going, hey, David, let's talk this out. I know people have said some bad things about us on both sides. And people have been telling me, you're trying to kill me. And I believe them. Uh, and I know people have been telling you that the spear thing is a big deal. And you should enact revenge upon me. But let's just sit down and figure it out. Let's sit down and talk about it because I'm sure we can come to an understanding. They're not coming to an understanding here. What is Saul doing in some sense? He's repenting. Well, it's not a misunderstanding. I tried to kill you, boy. I tried to wipe you out. And so often that's the way we think about our own sin with Jesus. That is just a misunderstanding. All right, hear me out, Jesus. I know I did this, this, this. But if you just knew what was going on, You'd do the same thing. And, and it's not a misunderstanding. Our sin's not a misunderstanding. God created us for the glory of Jesus Christ, and we have sought our own glory. That's not a misunderstanding. God has blessed us by allowing us to live in his world, and yet we walk around thinking it's not enough. And God has saved us, given us the opportunity to believe in Jesus and be saved. And yet we think we can do it on our own. We think we don't need that. 
That there's no misunderstanding there. God has been good to us. God has been gracious to us. God is kind, and we have been wronged, and we have been mad, bad, and we have been rebellious. There's no misunderstanding with Saul and David here. Notice verse 20, and now behold, I know that you will surely be king. You are the right king. Notice, <laughs> he's admitting what is true. David, you're going to be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. I know what's coming. And these very things that he's admitting here about David are the very things that he's fighting against. I know you're going to be king, and that's what I'm fighting. That's why I want to kill you, because I want to be king. He's admitting his sin. And so... Verse 21, he pleads for mercy, swear to me, therefore, by the Lord. Can you imagine this coming out of the lips of Saul? You, God's king, swear to me, by the Lord, let's make a covenant that you will not cut off my offspring. You will not destroy my family. You will not kick us out of Israel. You will not kick us out of the promises of God. You will not alienate my, alienate my household. The promises of God will still come to us in you, David. Swear to me this. And, and we think, pretend you didn't read ahead. We, what we still want right here, stop it, God. I don't, I don't want to hear any more. Because imagine if your enemy was groveling at your feet. Imagine what you would say and do. Those who hurt you the most. I'm not talking about the guy that cut you off in traffic this morning. I'm talking about the abuse. I'm talking about the tragedy, the trauma. And that person comes and is pleading for your mercy, groveling at your feet. What would you say and do? Oh, I know you're apologizing now. I don't know if you mean it. We'll see. We'll see. I know how you are. How would you respond? What would you do? Notice what David does. It's scandalous. He swore this to Saul. He granted him mercy again. And notice, Saul went home. Saul goes back to the castle. Saul goes back to the throne. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. They're still in the wilderness. This is not the way the story should end. And what we've seen here is Saul is a king after the hearts of the nation. What would the kings of the nations do? If they were in David's position and, and Saul, what if, what if David was groveling to him at that moment? Spear, boom, it's over. Because Saul is a king like the nations. But what do we see David doing here? David is the king after God's own heart. And what have we said? God is a good shepherd. God is a gracious and kind shepherd. God is a merciful shepherd. And so David is a king after God's own heart. So he shows Saul mercy. You know what? Saul is the same kind of king I would be if I were writing this story. If I'm writing the story, David walks out with Saul's in his hand, just like Goliath's, and says, let's go, boys. It's time to take over. Let's rule. Let's reign. I've killed my enemy. That's not what he does. He walks out with a piece of his robe. But if I'm writing the story, Saul gets his throat cut here. And I thank God that I'm not writing the story. Because I need a king 
after God's own heart, not a king after Saul's heart, not a king after my own heart. Because the truth is, God is teaching me here, if I'm writing the story, and my view of mercy is inserted here, Jesus slits my throat on the way to the throne. Because I've rebelled against him. Jesus is the one who wipes me out. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and he comes and he lays his life down, if If I'm writing the story with my view of mercy, he doesn't come and lay his life down and surrender and give up on a cross. He comes in and sets up shop. And the mercy is if Jesus does that, we're all wiped out. And there is no kingdom because no one can be a part of the kingdom unless he first lays his life down. And we're called to do the same with our enemies. David treats Saul like a king, as the king. And David is a great warrior. He's killed Philistine enemies. He has every right to treat Saul as an enemy, but he treats him as a king. He treats him as an honored king here. And it's the same thing that Jesus has done for us. Jesus becomes the criminal so that we can become co-heirs in the kingdom. So we can have his rights in the kingdom. That's what David's doing for Saul here. He's, He's restraining his rights as king So Saul can have them for a little while longer. David says, I'll be the criminal in the cave so you can be the king on the throne. And that's what Jesus does on the cross for us. He becomes the criminal executed for our sin, chased down by our sin so he can pursue us with mercy, so he can give us grace, so he can give us his righteousness. He takes upon our sin. And it is God's heart of mercy that is to break our hearts of sin. Some of us here today, we have such a hard time with mercy. And it's because we have been hurt so bad. And we don't want to gloss over that today. In any way, as as we think about the pain and we think about the agony of our own life, I don't want you to hear today that just get over it because that's not mercy. It's not mercy. Jesus did, God didn't say, I'm just going to get over your sin. No, he killed, allowed his son to be killed in your place for your sin. There's no getting over it at the cross. And so if you're here today, I pray that the cross, I pray that God's heart of mercy on the cross would break your heart of sin today. And you, first of all, would turn to Jesus. You would believe in Jesus and that you would be saved. And you would delight in mercy. You would say today, Jesus, you are the right king and I have been wrong. And yet you've treated me an enemy as a co-heir by giving me this great and glorious gospel. And from that point on, guess what? You have the power. You have the authority. You have the right. Because you've tasted mercy and your heart's been broken by mercy to show mercy to others. Knowing justice will come. But believing justice for your sin has already come in Jesus. Let's pray.